Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard Tybal. Hello, Pete. How are you doing, Howard? I'm doing great. You feeling, a... Are you feeling good? Is your kung fu strong? My kung fu is, is, is as strong as it's ever been, Pete. <laughs> you always throw me this question. I never know what you're going to ask. But I came back from Atlanta yesterday, and uh, it, was a, it was a good day. You know, except the pilot came on right before we took off. I said, look, we're going to go back to the gate. The... Um, the brakes don't seem to be working very well. <laughs> People are getting annoyed, and I'm thinking, we should all be very thankful. Yes, yeah, yes. Brakes are problem number one. I, I'll tell you, I'm very excited about our conversation today. Uh, we have, uh, over the past month, we've, you know, we've talked about, talked with university presidents and trustees and faculty cultivating this dialogue around building strong relationships between institutional leaders in light of this search for, for this careful balance of accountability, authority, and responsibility uh, at the top. Our conversation today is going to focus on the role of the board in helping the institution improve its decision-making prowess to, to provide leadership and vision at the strategic level, and above all else, to be consequential in the ongoing development and growth of the institution. Now, I'm teasing a little bit. Uh, we have our hands on a report, the report of the National Commission on College and University Board Governance called Consequential Boards, Adding Value Where It Matters Most. To help us have this conversation, we have invited one of the participants and authors of this report, Dr. Richard Chait, Professor Emeritus at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He makes a study of the management and governance of colleges and universities. We're thrilled to have him here today. Thank you. Dr. Chait, for joining us. Uh, good afternoon. A pleasure to be with you. What to you is a consequential board? Ah, okay. Generally, I would think of a consequential board as one that focuses the lion's share of its time on the issues that matter most to the institution's long-term future, that then engages in meaningful and influential discussions that lead to deliberations and decisions, and then a board that monitors progress toward the intended results. So three parts, important issues, influential conversations, and meaningful results. I, I think it's a fascinating conversation to to try to pull apart what it is that that makes an important issue for the board given what we have what we've heard about the challenges that face uh kind of the the triangle of leadership you know the the board president relationship the uh you know shared governance issues of you know diffusing shared governance um how do you how do you help institutions determine and boards how do you how do you see them discerning what makes a, a you know an important issue that the board should should have in their bailiwick well, we usually start with a process where the president and the executive team propose a set of issues for the board's deliberations as uh, matters of paramount importance. That's then vetted, supplemented, modified by the board. Uh, when I work in a longer-term engagement with boards, um, try to help boards be self-aware of how they allocate time and attention and whether that synchronizes with uh, the strategic priorities of the institution uh, and also help them uh, resist the temptation 
to uh, be drawn into conversations that have seductive properties, uh, maybe of uh, temporary or ephemeral importance, but ultimately are not critical to uh, the institution's uh, well-being, either in the short term or the long term. I love two things you just said there that really stand out to me. First of all, the boards should be self-aware and not Mm -hmm. uh, be uh, lured by these seductive properties. Howard, I wonder if you could just just respond to those two points, because I think you have, you know, you have run into uh, some of these very issues. How do you see boards? uh, How do these phrases hit you in your work with between boards and leadership? And that, by the way, was what struck me from uh, listening to Dick at this event where the group was speaking about the consequential boards uh, document. And you talk about self-awareness, uh, Dick. I'm, I'm, uh, one of the things that I find myself attempting to do with any group, uh, whether it is the cabinet, a board, or a particular department, is to help them think about what does it really mean to engage in the questions versus jump mm-hmm. to the answers. Yes. And that's one of the things I heard you talk about that so got under my skin. It's like that's exactly what – we don't do a very good job of is keep the conversation at a level of uh, I just saw Dick by the way I was at um, I was at a university out on the west coast and they have mm-hmm. the signage and the signage says question the answers or mm-hmm. not as opposed to mm-hmm. answer the questions and mm-hmm. and that to me is what I I think is probably one of the biggest challenges is not to get them to jump towards this is what we need to do as opposed to keep raising the bigger questions. Do you, do you find that to be, in terms of raising self-awareness, one of the bigger challenges, getting them not to jump to this is what we want to do? Absolutely. And that's um, I think that's explainable by several factors. Um, One, these are generally people who are problem solvers daytime. And so they they love to be presented with a, a problem and offer a solution. Second, they tend to be somewhat impatient with academic processes. Uh, third, they are only intermittently uh, convened. So it's not as if they have a continuous opportunity to deliberate these issues. And there is a greater sense of satisfaction that comes from solutions and decisions uh, I sometimes uh, observe that, that many boards use the wrong RPM. Uh, they, they use resolutions per meeting as the way in which they, <laughs> right. they, they, they gauge their productivity uh, and vastly underestimate the importance of hypothesis development, insights as opposed to uh, decisions, sense-making as opposed to decision-making. And sometimes management contributes to the process um, because if management has a an endpoint in mind or a particular alternative uh, as a preferable course of action, uh, management sometimes will escort the board right to the decision and bypass uh, the, uh, a discussion about whether the issue has been framed properly and whether the, the right questions are in play. Yeah, it's, it's, it, to me, it's like it comes down to what the intent is. 
And mm-hmm. if you think about how a particular university or college structures their board uh, sort of thinking, it seems to me, mm-hmm. I was, I'm reading now Steve Ball's Shared Governance in Times of Change, and he talks about mm-hmm. sort of the three ways that boards operate or the three ways they can operate, this idea, uh, or shared governance. Equal rights, right, between all the parties is right. one way of doing it. The second one is that we consult with each other, but ultimately mm-hmm. we, we there really isn't engagement in that. And the third one is this idea of there are rules that we have to operate by. And in mm-hmm. that very limited way of thinking, as opposed to his fourth option, talking about aligning priorities, uh, which is a, a system for aligning priorities, which I really love as the fourth alternative. It seems to me the reason we don't go there is because it requires us to step back and ask the questions up front about how we're going to do this before mm-hmm. we get into the subject matter. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear how you how do you find yourself being effective with a board? It, it's really a function of getting in there early enough where you can say, let's focus on, the outcome we're trying to produce and right. then discover the how we're going to get there as opposed to what the subject matter is that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think I uh, attempt to differentiate or separate for boards change of mindset and change of mechanics. Mm. And the change of mindset is is most critical. Um, boards need to consider what does it mean to think like a trustee as opposed to think like an executive. And uh, just as a matter of, of convenience uh, and uh, mnemonics, uh, I've settled on uh, the phrase uh, oversight, foresight, insight. And those are the three roles that a board needs to play and probably needs to play all three on most issues of, of substantial uh, significance to the institution. Uh, and again, I think boards tend to overemphasize or unduly stress oversight, the sort of fiduciary responsibility, and undervalue the, the power of, of insights, which provide different angles of vision, different definitions of a, of a problem. Uh, so that, that would be the, the framework or, or template, just like Bell has three ways to think about boards. Uh, I try to... Um, expose boards to the idea that there are three very different ways to add value and you can add substantial value in each of those dimensions. So, so here's a practical question for you. You know, this idea of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right. <laughs> You're dealing with a right. So, so you get pulled in, and I get pulled in in situations where somebody recognizes they could use some help. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Let's say that the person that pulls you in and introduces you to the board chair and you find yourself in a position where the board chair is really not uh, receptive to this kind yep. of intervention yep. uh, or this way of thinking. How do, you, how do you go about helping turn around their sort of their being stuck in, you know, we yeah. have to keep it structured in terms of how our committees work and right. we're going to spend right. our, we're going to support the board meeting, updating each other. And, and th- there's no real dialogue. All there is is, is yeah. a set of updates and, and, right. and nothing, nothing substantial or consequential really happens. How do you intervene in this on the early stage? Because I think in the absence of having right. a chair stepping forward and saying, I'll do this, very little can change. Is, 
uh, under those circumstances, Howard, uh, I recommend someone else for the assignment. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's the first course of action. Um, there are ways, I think, uh, and, and that's not altogether facetious. Um, I have as a matter of practice that I will not engage with a board minimally unless both the president and the board chair uh, su support uh, the engagement and have enthusiasm. If one of those two parties, uh, you use the example of a board chair, has some reluctance, then there are alternatives, and that is to determine whether the governance committee of the board or the committee on trusteeship of the board wants to be the, the product champion for better governance, or even to take the matter, uh, as I've done on occasion, to the entire board and say the board collectively has to decide whether you'd like to do this. Uh, it's impossible to be a fitness instructor to a client who refuses to exercise. Um, and if you have uh, absolute resistance, whether that resides with the board chair or the president, um, then I'm afraid things have to either get worse before they'll get better or the center, if the center rate of opinion on the board as a whole is at variance with the chair, then you have um, the possibility to go forward, although you do so, so with a very significant handicap. It's, it's fascinating to, to think about this. And I, you know, I want to step back to your, your three word sort of mnemonic, the oversight, foresight, insight. To hear you talk about this, I hear a lot of the, uh, some of the struggle that we heard from, uh, you know, Rick Lagan, who, who stepped in and, and said in his role as president of AGB, you know, one of the things we have to stop doing to boards is treat them as a pony show, right? This dog and pony show where we present to them and then there is there is a response you know uh, and and so when i look at your mnemonic here it seems almost prescriptive as as a timeline and gets us to this next question of you know how do we better condition these boards to support the institution of the future, right? Not just struggling through some of the political machinations that we're dealing with today, but how do we lead them to uh, and train them to having more insight and and potentially relinquishing some of the natural, as you say, sort of executive tendencies around oversight? Part of it uh, is uh, issue displacement. I think of this as whales in the pool. If, if management can help the board see that there are two or three whales in the pool, then the, the, the amoeba and paramecia become a lot less significant, and it's less likely that a zealous trustee uh, will mistake algae for a humpback. So part of it is to say, here's where we, we need to concentrate. Second is for the academics, the administration to recognize that, in fact, most trustees have fairly substantial expertise and experience, uh, particularly at, at private institutions. These people are selected because uh, each of them has a successful track record and some particular skills to contribute. And, the, uh, and often they're alumni of the institution. So if, um, if they're not particularly valuable to the institution, it's quite an indictment of the education that these uh, trustees um, received at at the college it, itself. As as an uh, aside, Richard, is that a yep. is that a problem? Uh, having a that, sort of that, front load or or heavy uh, heavying up on alumni on the board. 
It is. It it has the potential to be a problem, and it sometimes is a problem. There are trustees mired in in nostalgia, um, with an overly protective and precious view of the institution. If, if I could be entirely autocratic uh, for an independent college, I would prescribe a board that's probably two thirds alumni, one third not. And the alumni would be across um, the entire age spectrum of the of the graduates, not as tends to be the case, bunched with um, uh, alumni who are 25 to 40 years out of college. Mm -hmm. Reflecting on faculty in this conversation and the the misunderstanding that I think, or the lack of real dialogue that happens between faculty mm -hmm. boards. They really don't understand each other. Now, unless you have, if you have senior, if you have alumni who may be faculty at other institutions, I do some work with some institutions where right. there are faculty on the boards. And, and yep. it, it's a very important perspective to bring because mm -hmm. they bring the student perspective that can mm -hmm. often get lost in the conversations. But how do you, how do you, or how have you found ways to create more of a deeper appreciation for the faculty perspective and and what they bring to this conversation of the evolving institution and where we want to go in our mission mm -hmm. and the board perspective so that when information gets passed both ways, they can appreciate that both views really add up to a better solution as opposed to seeing the others as more of a threat. You know, the faculty... Uh, don't appreciate the business side, and the right. board don't appreciate the fact that this is not this is not a business. The common denominator at almost all institutions is that faculty and trustees have an affection for the institution and want to uh, attain still greater successes. Uh, neither party should should lose sight of that. Though I think the key is to create substantive opportunities for discussions among and between faculty, executives, and, and trustees. Too often, I think, uh, the parties are isolated from one another. That creates conditions conducive to the perpetuation of stereotype, um, to misconceptions about demonic qualities of the uh, of So of what, the, uh, how would you actually go about it, uh, putting that in place? I love that idea. It would the uh, chair and the president come together and say, "Listen, offline between our quarterly board meetings, we're going to we're going to have uh, each one of us are going to commit to connecting with a faculty member or how, how have you oh, actually you do that. made that?" I wasn't thinking of it, it quite so much in a uh, a one-on-one -on -one or a, a social sense. Uh, I was thinking of it actually organized and orchestrated around uh, issues of uh, substantial significance. So uh, I have worked uh, with boards uh, that have regular retreats with the faculty, and they discuss questions about marketplace competition, technology, the hallmark characteristics of that institution's um, education, the cost cost structure, um, with the uh, design to exchange points of view, see where there's consensus or or middle ground to tackle uh, an issue like um, offensive or inappropriate student behavior 
on campus. Uh, these are issues about which both trustees and faculty care deeply. They share. They share. So you pick a topic that yes, they yeah. both can, and they can begin to see that they that both sides really deeply uh, value. Uh, right. Figuring out a solution around that. It's interesting. I led a I led a faculty board retreat, and it did not go well. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons it did not go well is that the faculty demanded that the representatives who would be at this retreat they got to pick uh, them. And that was a. Right. I mean, the president really did yeah. at the at the time. Uh, honored that request, and they put mm. forward people who had more mm. of an agenda right. to say what they didn't want versus how do we work better together. Right. And there are ways to institutionalize this. Uh, there are many institutions where uh, faculty members serve with or without vote uh, on appropriate committees like academic affairs or, or student life. Um, I wrote a piece a number of years ago called uh, – faculty and trustees so so much alike so often at odds uh, mm. they actually have i think very similar characteristics or or properties and once they come to recognize that um, they have some of the same foibles um, it's it's a little easier uh, for uh, boards and faculty to to work together particularly if the issues are far-sighted and i think you know that's what you addressed earlier so a conversation about what are going to be the most critical factors uh, that we have to entertain between now and 2020? So it's to develop an agenda or to think about the uh, environmental threats that are posed to various colleges and universities. So if they work together to set agendas, to understand context, a larger environment. And I find most often that... Um, their perspectives, when harnessed together, provide a sharper view of the future than either could summon alone. You know, I'm often asked uh, when I'm speaking, what am I optimistic about in higher education? Mm -hmm. And I, I find that people get surprised when I reflect on that I think there's more goodwill, goodwill out there mm -hmm. than we give credit for. Mm -hmm. And we end up focusing on the negative because of the louder voice mm -hmm. and also because it's, it will be nice to be able to convert somebody who's negative. So we put a lot mm -hmm. of our energy and attention mm -hmm. on the negative story versus the good that's out there. And, and the fact that there's more good, that there's, 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 there's much less, uh, of the negative behavior than we got right. that we give credit for, right. and that we give yeah. attention to. So I'm curious when you when you think forward and what are you optimistic about in how higher ed is evolving and in this conversation about shared governance? Uh, I have what must be a misplaced optimism, because the uh, the naysayers tend to grab more headlines and I think unnecessarily startle people with a forecast that 50% of all colleges will close. Uh, I'll take that bet publicly, and I'll take under 15% over 10 years. And uh, in fact, if you were to exclude colleges which currently have enrollments under 1,000 students, I think we'll see very few closures. Um, much has been made of the fact, for example, that Sweetbriar is gonna close. 
um, if a hundred sweetbriars closed tomorrow, it would represent one half of one percent of the total enrollments in American higher education today. So, if three restaurants close, I wouldn't conclude that dining out is dead. Uh, <laughs> That's good. But I am very optimistic because if you do take, you know, what the French call the the long durée, if you take the long view of history. Um, American colleges and universities have been unbelievably durable, and and I have a hypothesis that there have been they've been durable for two reasons. One is that they're imperceptibly adaptable. That is, they change, and and the second, which is closely related, they change so slowly that they're actually resistant to fads, and that that's advantageous. Uh, so you don't see colleges and universities lurch the way corporations do. Um, you know, tar, uh, but, that's, JC- but that's also, wouldn't you also say that that's, that's also part of their liability in that if they have to make tough decisions, uh, especially around workforce, yep. they, they are, that's not, that there's no comfort for that except, well, I think know, there I think there is, Howard. Um, it, it, I, I assume your show enjoys debate, so let me take the other side of Please. that. Please, yes. Um, when I first entered the profession about 35 years ago, I did a lot of uh, studies of academic tenure systems, uh, and and there were there are these um, sort of spasms of of uh, opposition to to tenure. One was in the in the 1970s in the aftermath of. Uh, campus disruptions. Legislators thought, you know, tenure should be uh, set aside. Then there was a whole set of questions when the recession of the uh, and, and hyperinflation came. That should we retrench and and tenure seemed to impede that. If you fast forward to today, less than a quarter of all full-time faculty, of, of all faculty who teach, are tenured. That's an enormous change in the composition of the labor force. It, it, it's sort of similar to uh, people's notion of an Ozzie and Harriet uh, family or you know, quintessential family, a father knows best family. Um, we have changed the labor force. It is far less uh, tenured, much to the chagrin of most faculty and certainly to the uh, American Association of University and Professors. I was just going to add that. That, fa- that faculty body is now fungible uh, to many institutions. Yes. And that creates a, mm-hmm. a, a completely different um, you know, political environment, certainly, when we Absolutely. talk about representation yes, towards shared but governance. It, what I was really speaking to uh, was more on the service delivery side, the, the administrative, the ho- administrative side of the house. Mm. And the the continued increases yes. of the associates and the yep. uh, uh, vices, vice deans. And exactly. And, yeah. and I think once you put roles in place, it's very hard to undo it. I mean, I understand why. Uh, so, so when I think about the challenges associated with workforce, do we have the right workforce distributed through the organization? Mm-hmm. I think higher ed has a hard time looking at that and making choices. Uh, and and because it, it's very different than the corporate world. There's a certain kind of uh, acceptance when you when you enter this space, it's a much more caring environment. But I think what comes yeah. with that is this sense that 
you have a there, there's a bit not there's no longer a sense that you have a job for life, but there is right. this reluctance to look at performance. I think it's slowly changing. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing more and more people coming from the military, in particular from the Navy, mm-hmm. working on the administrative side of the house. Mm. But at the same time, I think this is a this is an area in the absence of a crisis, a financial mm-hmm. crisis. We let that we let that go, and it's something that we yep. have to get better at. I do think we'll see uh, more functions outsourced uh, that have heretofore been uh, part of the internal administrative uh, workforce. Uh, I do think there will be, whether by desperation or legislation or some combination, um, there will be cost containment uh, on the the payroll side. Um, But... And when we talk about the corporate side, there, on the one hand, we do see uh, massive layoffs, but I am not persuaded that we always see a relationship between pay and performance. And what always uh, astonishes me is the severance package for um, notoriously unsuccessful executives. Yes. And it, you know, if higher education wanted to solve that problem in a corporate fashion, go through the institution, find the five, the five to ten percent least effective members of the workforce, offer them a, a severance package comparable to what corporate executives get, and and they would they would leave before you could shut the lights out. Right. <laughs> uh, this is a wonderful conversation. I think you've you've really. Uh, lend so much credibility to this conversation. I wonder, as we wrap up, if you could just share a few words on uh, not just what, you know, the role boards serve in the future. We've already thrown out sort of the board of 2020, but what should institutions be expecting of their boards in 10 years versus what we expect of them today? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know whether the expectations per se will be radically different. I suspect the topics that boards tackle and uh, the challenges uh, that boards will need to embrace will be somewhat different um, by, by 2020. Um, I guess what I would, would hope, Howard, is, maybe ex- uh, even expect, is that boards will be much more purposeful um, being much more self-conscious about allocation of time and attention. A board's greatest leverage by far is to shine attention in a relentless manner on very few issues that are each imbued with um, strategic significance. And I I do think we'll see boards um, play more of a, a role in uh, agenda development for the institution uh, than perhaps is the, the case today. In the um, Among private institutions, uh, I think that's going to be quite beneficial. Uh, for public university boards, I think it's still an open, open question. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, uh, Richard Chait, Professor Emeritus. Delight to join you. So, so uh, glad to have you here today. Howard, uh, final words from you, sir. Well, the only thing I'd add to this, and uh, just a little birdie told me, uh, Dick, that um, the, 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 the title, Consequential Boards, is something that you – was this an epiphany? You're laying in bed one night, and all of a sudden you woke up and said, I got it. 
What did the, what did the name come from? Yeah, the, the, so the birdie is is correct. It's actually worse than that. Um, <laughs> we wrote Your humility this book. is astounding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's worse than that. Um, you know, my colleagues Bill Ryan, Barbara Taylor, and I wrote a book which was had a a, a fair share of visibility called Governance as Leadership, uh, and that's that's okay. It's a it's a decent title. But of course, as soon as the the ink was set and uh, the presses had started to roll, um, that was the epiphany for me. I, I realized that if we had a second chance, I would much have preferred to name the book Consequential Governance. So you have been holding on to this and looking for the right opportunity to spring it. I wanted to just I just wanted to hang this on some <laughs> other movie <laughs> that in, in which I didn't star. Yeah, so uh, I was quite thrilled when AGB a uh, this is behind up not the only scenes. the title, but I confessed authorship of of the subtitle as well. Um, you know, adding adding value where it matters most. It's you great. confess, but only by pulling teeth at this point. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's been a treat to to uh, have this conversation with you, uh, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that uh, you know, as other uh, issues and conversations come up, you will uh, you'll join us again on Navigating Change. Uh, it would be my pleasure, and thank you so much for the opportunity, Howard. Uh, as we um, as we wrap up here, uh, any final words of wisdom? for the people no i think that's it we're good this was good you can this take good. us out Pete. i'm take doing us out. it thank you everybody for listening to the show uh, on behalf of howard table table and dr richard chait uh, of harvard university uh, this has been navigating change the podcast from table inc mm-hmm.